This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. Teal Talk Radio, Season 6, Episode 35. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 35 of TL Talk Radio. I'm Lynn Funy-Hatton. And I'm Randy Ziegenfuss. Today, we're speaking with Larry Altman. Larry, as you may recall, is a return guest to TL Talk Radio, and we look forward to another excellent conversation with him today. We'll put all of Larry's past episodes in the show notes, so if legal issues are your interest, be sure to check them out. So Larry currently works as a consultant for schools helping them develop legally compliant policies, protocols, and procedures for Title IX, anti-bullying, student suicide prevention, Section 504, and the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. He's also a distinguished member of the American Law Society and serves as an adjunct professor for Avila University located in Kansas City, Missouri. Today, we're speaking with Larry about a topic of particular relevance in this time of COVID-19, student mental health. So welcome back to our show, Larry. It's great to be here as always with, with both of you and your, and your uh, audience. Our pleasure. So let's get our conversation started today with an understanding of why the topic of mental health, especially during this time of COVID-19, is important to you as an attorney. Well, as an attorney, it's important to me because I work with school districts, or I did. I'm doubt, I don't practice anymore, uh, but I am a consultant for the attorneys and their families, and also I teach grad education students about the topic. Uh, mental health has always been a component of, of a possible disability under the Individual Disability Education Act and Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act. Research, or my research, and reading online and listening to doctors coming on the radio and TV uh, have reminded or have pointed out that there is a concern now that the people, the children not being in school, uh, are now going to have an increased incidence when they do return of trauma uh, because they've been missing school. There's pressure at home. Uh, there are things that we've never seen before. And if, in fact, they are correct, we, we could be facing what I would refer to as a mental health epidemic. Uh, in our schools that the that people need to be that the staff educators need to be ready for so larry before we uh scheduled our our podcast subject today you sent us a paper that you had written an upcoming paper um, that's yet to be published and it's a summation of the 2019 publication from the national center for school mental health and in that paper it says that data supports the need for schools to develop high quality mental health systems and in fact you actually write and i'll quote this Data collected indicated that annually 13% to 20% of school-aged children in the U.S. 
would meet the criteria of a diagnosis for a mental health disorder. Further, annually, 5% of school-aged children in the United States suffer from an alcohol or substance abuse problem. In fact, the data showed that only 12% of the above students received any services to help those children with their mental health, alcohol, or substance abuse problems, end quote. So has the data always been there and we're just only starting to put more of a focus on mental health or is there something else that is creating this, this sort of uptick in statistics? Well, we know the paper you referred to are, was something written uh, and published just last year um, by an organization that, that did research uh, on it. But the CDC had published something in 2015 uh, that put us all on notice, the schools on notice and everybody on notice that uh, 12%, a significant number of the population was suffering from some mental, from mental health issues. Uh, and that their concern back then was the lack of treatment across the board uh, in this field. So, we, we, so if we go back to, and they were doing, collecting data from 2012 forward. So if you go back to the CDC uh, publication and their research, this is not my research. This is the CDC and the other organization. This isn't something that I just made up. So I want everybody to listeners to understand this is what mental health authorities and their published papers have been telling us that as far back as 2012, it appears that we have had some issues with mental health problems in the United States. It has impacted children. And now to confirm that the in 2019, this organization comes up and says, hey, keep in mind that that we still got it. It's still here. And they expanded it further and went into CDC didn't talk about specifics of what they suggested in the school, this organization came together, these groups of psychologists, psychiatrists in the child mental health field and said, here's the data we have. And we have also learned that if we could figure out how to pr provide these services through a school environment, our outcomes are better. So this is not new by any means. So what does that look like, some of the services in, in schools? You know, how are schools sort of solving those those challenges? Well, I'm going to step back and say I'm not sure they have, okay, that they have mm -hmm. solved them. We, they, most schools will have counselors. Uh, all public, all schools that receive federal funding uh, have to comply with the uh, Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act and of, section, and of the uh, Individual Disability Education Act. What takes place is that if, in theory, is that if um, incidents that if they notice a child is having what could be a defined disability, schools have an obligation that are child fine to assess the child's needs and then determine if the child qualifies for a disability under one of the two laws. Now, under IDEA, it's a very com it's a much more higher standard to meet what they call an emotional disability. That's their category or other health impairment. Switching over to 504, especially since the uh, Congress re changed it 12 years ago. In theory, we should be recognizing more children who have this. The problem that I have, at least with my five years at the Kansas City, Missouri Public Schools, and when I talk to schools today, A, they don't have the staff. B, they don't have the funding. They're fortunate. They believe they're fortunate just to keep up with, quote, the things that they, quote, can see, end quote. Mm -hmm. And mental health, it's you, you give a child with mental health, problems, depression, PTSD, uh, could be a brilliant student. So their answer is, what's the problem here? Now, some of that has changed in that 
there have now been studies, and it was pointed out specifically under the President Obama's administration that in their papers discussing bullying is that trauma is one of those issues that create mental health issues. So they put a requirement into into their 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 suggestions was that if a child already had a disability and was sexually harassed or bullied, that could make it worse. There have been federal courts around the country, a couple of them, that have said that environmental issues uh, can create in itself uh, mental health depression and that this, under Section 504, schools should be on notice. But it is, for a lack of better phrase, because of funding or whatever other reason, the, the poor relative that they just sort of say, eh, well, we haven't got time for it. So when you describe in your paper the policies, protocols, and procedures for mental health support as high quality, what do you mean? Like, what are some of those core features of high quality mental health systems that well, if we're saying it as a superintendent, we're doing this, what should we, what should we be, what should we have? Let's start back from the beginning. What it requires, at least, and, and again, this is what my paper talks about. What is the core, what are the core features of these, of, the, of a high quality mental system? First of all, schools are going to need to have highly trained staff that understand mental health issues. Now, counselors may not fit that. And that's all with all due respect to counselors. I've never been taking their classes, but they didn't say just counselors. They said highly trained, specialized people that can recognize these features as the first part of that. Uh, and so as a guide for that, what I suggest is, is since IDEA talks about highly qualified individuals, this may become a new category for that. So you need to start there as a reviewing point. Now, if the school doesn't have those folks, and this is where the collaboration of community comes in, uh, or can, is that perhaps you can get individuals or organizations in your community that will help you with that. We had that with the Kansas City, Missouri Public School District in that we had Children's Mercy staff come in and help us with that. Didn't charge the school, helped us. So that gave us the head start. The next thing, this is not an, this, this is a collaborative process. Uh, I'm an attorney. Uh, I don't have a degree in, in psychology. Uh, in theory, I'm supposed to know the legal implications of these things. So that's where I come in because I can link them to the other parts of what we're doing. But you have to have parents' involvement because it's their children. It wouldn't hurt also to have children who are a little older can express themselves of what their fears are, concerns when they don't, when they can't, uh, when they're afraid to come out and tell anybody what's wrong with me. Superintendent, staff, teachers, gen ed, and special ed student staff. Uh, certainly your counselors need to be involved. And again, if you can get components from outside your community in the, in the area of mental health providers, experts, you can come in and start collaborating on what your plan needs to look like. So that's, that's the second part. Next, uh, once you establish what it is you're trying to do, and I'm really jumping fast in this. This is not a, this is not a one day process. I, what you have to do and what we did at Kansas City, you have to have some sort of a screening process. And by that it means is that first of all, what we did in Kansas City is that as that point person, when we expanded it completely, if there was a concern about a child's mental health, the report hit my desk through the email. I then did a quick triage, and if it was a mental health issue, I referred that to a team, our team that dealt with those issues, who had to report back to me, and then we, they would immediately contact the parents, and they would screen those situations. Uh, what we were looking for is disturbing behaviors that might require some professional involvement. 
Now, not every time when a child says on the playground, I wish I was dead, means the child has a mental health issue. I've got that. But it requires a screening process because this allows us to look when it's further down the line. Or when we have a traumatic situation, such as the shootings that we've had in schools, I published a paper that talked about that. And now we have this. This is going to have to heighten our awareness of what we are going to have to screen about. Once we get that done, uh, we need to then start collecting data and analyzing the data. So let's say that we've now been at this for 90 days. We've now gotten X number of reports. What are the categories? What are we seeing? What are the outcomes? Um, because we may not be doing as well as we want to. That's okay. I understand that. I wouldn't expect a first-time plan to work. But then you analyze the data, check your weaknesses, check your strengths, and in those areas that are weak, adjust your plan accordingly and continue to collect the data you need. Uh, the key component, once you get all these together, implement it without fail. There are no shortcuts, no exceptions. If I've developed a policy, protocols, and procedures, the school meaning that, and part two is report to the, you have to report to me even an inkling of a problem, that means report. Don't, that's what we're here for. We'll make the call. And if your principal or somebody steps in and says, don't bother Larry, and we hear about that, the superintendent has to back that teacher up and say to the principal, no, no, that's not your call. So you put all that together along with periodically reviewing your policies, and that five steps, and there's the funding part, that's over in another corner. Yeah, you're going to need money. But those <laughs> are the parts that you really have a critical mass that you need to get this done. It will not be easy. It will be mm -hmm. time-consuming. Mm -hmm. I've got that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So definitely some uh, important qualities that distinguish those uh, high-quality mental health systems. So from your perspective as a lawyer um, and any other experts that you might know, what recommendations do you have for us as school leaders as we design these high-quality mental health support systems? Well, the part one, as I said, is that we need to collaborate. We need to bring people together and discuss what is going on in the real world. Um, that's critical step one. It has to be a collaborative process. Let's look at what we've got. What have we seen in the past? What have we been doing in the past, if anything? And now let's, let's start asking the experts, what do we need to go forward uh, to design a plan that would meet some of the things that I've talked about? So that's the first step. You then bring the parents and everybody else into the discussion as you formulate these policy protocols and procedures. And at some point, you're going to start writing them out. And once you write them out, that's that's the, 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 the policy protocols and procedures. Next step is implementation. Who implements it? Those who implement should be part of that original discussion or part of the ongoing discussions as we make our plan because we're asking them to be the, I hate to use the word soldiers, but that's who they are. They're, they're in the field. They're seeing this every day. And if they're not participating in the planning process, they're not going to be fully uh, feel as if they're a part of the team. So it's a collaborative team process to get it done. And we have to factor in this new, this new set of criteria that we've not seen before, the closing of schools. In theory, in theory, those schools that have dealt with school shootings, who've got school-wide traumatic instances, if they have been doing their homework, should have already been implementing some of the things that these folks are talking about now. Whether they have is another question. But that's my starting point. I went back to my paper 
a couple of years ago after Parkland and looked at the roadmap that I suggested there, if I was being asked today by Kansas City Public Schools and is in-house, where do we start? I would go there. That'd be my starting point. Mm -hmm. And if they are um, actually implementing those things that were designed back then, that idea of collaborating definitely provides a lot more fuel to to doing this work. So I think that that idea of collaborating is really key, and I think that's what you're hitting home. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and and she's listening in on today uh, is that the key component who taught me that is Mrs. Altman, my wife, Gail. She's here. <laughs> she, if I've done anything good in this world, in this field, it's because of my wife, Gail. But one of the things that she had to teach me early on was get out of this win-win for lawyers at all costs. It was collaboration. And in the school environment, that's the critical component. Mm-hmm. It's collaboration. Yeah, good point. And, and largely because we all bring different expertise and we all bring different perspectives and um, it makes for a, a better whole. Yeah. Interesting. Let's just take, we've got four people, Gail's, you can't see her, but she's here, but let's look Hi, at Gail. <laughs> Want to see me? Of course. I'm not great to look at. Yes, she no, is. No, of course, of course. People think she's my daughter. Say, um, yeah, say hello. Hello. Uh, let's look at who we have right here, the four of us. Is it, okay, I bring the so-called legal expert of disability, of insure, of disability laws in a, into a discussion. Gail's a retired special education teacher. She's been in the trenches. You two are both administrators. We've got the starting point of discussion. If we were at your school district right now, we have four components, not all of them, that we could start the discussion. Mm -hmm. And from there, we would move forward. Yeah, so we certainly understand the value of collaboration. So as you know, we're recording this and we're on in Pennsylvania, stay at home for the coronavirus. And, um, you know, much of the nation is, experiencing that and it's become a new a new learning environment for our learners new collaboration opportunities um, and you know at this point we're not really sure when we'll go back into our buildings but when we do uh, there will be different needs and how might we as school leaders be prepared to support our learners and the student mental health once we would resume that normal school routine all right i'm going to refer back to the unpublished paper number one we need to establish some teams Okay. that need to plan now. I mean, we're sitting here as as you are in, in Kansas and we're across the border from well, Missouri just closed. Kansas has been closed as long as you have. Uh, we, it, it, the staff is home as we are today. We need to establish teams for our schools. How many is up to each school? Because as, as the Secret Service said when they were talking about threat assessment guides, every school is, it's, there's no one size fits all. But let's say you're in a school district such as I was in Kansas City, there were some uh, five elementary, three middle, and however many high schools, or more than that, 15 elementary, some 20 different schools. The suggestion start number one was we need to have a team that comes together and starts the planning. Now, you can have one giant team have a uniform policy protocols procedures across the school district, but you still have to have individual teams in your building that will be collecting their data particular to their building. So let's start there. Uh, again, as I've said in the past, the teams have to consist of a variety of what we call disciplines. Uh, they're also referred to as stakeholders. Well, the number one stakeholder of every school is the child. The, the component of that is their parent because most of them are under 18 and can't speak for themselves. That's why they have to be involved in this process. So, and then you have as we have the four of us, we include healthcare providers, and we come together 
and start the process of getting our plans in place. Now, once we do this, part of what I would like to see in every policy protocol and procedure is defining behaviors that might be concerning to us. And by that, I mean, is if we see significant absenteeism, if we see behaviors we've not seen before, if we've seen grades, even though these kids have been absent for four months, we know they're going to be behind. But if these children were former A students and now they're D and F students, that's a warning sign. If we see outbursts, crying, whatever, these are the behaviors that are concerning that put us on a heightened alert process that something needs to be assessed to see what's driving the engine here. Uh, then falling back to what federal law says, it says it's now you bring in these things called child fine because now these children may develop, have developed a disability that we've not seen before, or if they're already qualified, their disability may have been made worse by this. When I've talked to people who are in the autism field, what their concern is, those children work on structure. We've taken them out of the structure. Well, I can't, I've got to believe how upsetting it is for those children. Now you're putting them back into the structure. These are the kinds of things that have to be focused upon. Next, there has to be what I call a central reporting mechanism. So, again, let's go back to my time in Kansas City Public Schools. There was an icon on every staff person's computer that said child concerns or whatever it was. You popped on that icon, and here comes a one- or two-page report. Filled it out, hit send, hit my desk. Everybody has to have a reporting mechanism of some type in place, and every staff member needs to know, and I'm talking from the janitor on up, how to report. Parents need to have the ability to report in that central reporting system. And then there has to be somebody there who gets all these reports and screens. And then once they're screened, there has to be a mechanism, policy protocols in place of what do we do now? We had that in Kansas City, at my desk, I triage it, goes out. There were timelines we had established, and there was a central collection system in our that we had online and in our software that allowed me to go back and make sure that we were doing everything we we're supposed to do. And more importantly to me, or as important, was that if a child was reported today, say something that we decided wasn't all that critical, but 90 days later another report came in on that child, we could connect the computer system automatically connected the reports whoa, this isn't once, this is twice. And that changed our lookout to the whole uh, system. So you've got to put all that together. And now, as I said, we've got this time, May, June, and July, 90 days. So Larry, we said at the top of the show that you've been on, on the podcast a number of times, and this is number five. And I have to say, while we've enjoyed all of those conversations, I think this one's particularly resonating with me because I'm not so sure that... Um, we are quite out of that immediate reaction zone uh, phase where we're just sort of reacting to a lot of things around this this COVID-19 virus experience that we're having. And I'm, I'm not so sure we're thinking about the future and what's going to happen when it all sort of gets back to normal. And I think that's been a real big takeaway from our conversation. So really appreciate the timeliness of this, especially um, for us and our listeners as well. So as Lynn mentioned, we finish each episode with uh, some lightning response questions. So the first question is, who is one expert our listeners should connect with to learn more about student mental health? Well, I'm going to give you more, and, it's, it, and it comes from the paper that I've reviewed and, and researched because these are the best in the country. So they, they've named a couple of people. Uh, 
One of them, a group of, there are two doctors at George Washington University in the D.C. area, and I'm going to butcher their name, Olga Price and her uh, colleague Linda Sharif, S-H-E-R-I-F-F. Uh, there is a group from the Child Health and Development Institute in Connecticut, uh, Gina Bracey, uh, Jason Lang, and Jeffrey Vanderplug. These are people that contributed to this last paper. Right. Uh, there's also uh, somebody uh, from the National Center for School Mental Health, University of Maryland, Maryland School of Medicine, a group there led by Jill Bonenkamp. These are the folks that are online writing these papers right now. And they're the ones that are the authors of the paper that I uh, that I used uh, as the source of my publication. Uh, and they're the ones that helped create the 2019 publication calling, called Advancing Comprehensive School Mental Health Guidance from the Field. That's where I would start because it's the people I go online is who I read about. All right. Second question. If you were recommending one book to our listeners, what would it be? I don't know right now because this is a field of just a total, what are we going to do now? Okay. I mean, I've got a second book coming out. It's not touching this topic. Well, it does and it doesn't, um, but not in the detail that we're going to need for this currently. Uh, so there, I, I don't, I can't tell you there's a book out there because we're in a new territory. Right. You mentioned the word when we come back to normal, there are suggestions. We, we may not be back to what is normal. It's a new normal. It's a new normal. Yeah. And so it's going to, I expect in the next six to 10 months, there are going to be a ton of books out there that talk about this. Yeah, interesting. All right. So the last question, how do you maintain your knowledge base around uh, mental health and getting us to think in the way that you're getting us to think today? Well, it's, as I've said in the past, I subscribe to a, a group called Special Ed Connection, which is an LRP publication. Every day they've got stuff online. I have two, uh, contacts there that we constantly discuss articles they publish back and forth. That's how I found this. It was one of their, re they were saying they had, they had seen this. Was there an interest in it? I toggled on it, pulled up the entire document and started from there. This is, that's, that's the go-to guy. Without that, I can't get anywhere. All right. Thanks for all those resources and we'll be sure to put them in the show notes. Okay. All right, Larry, last question for you. What are you working on now that you would like to share with our listeners? Well, the paper is, well, there is a second book eventually coming out. Uh, everything's been delayed because our publisher's in New York. Uh, so that's, and, and there's this paper that will come out. I'm actually, the ACLU here, the local ACLU has asked me to help them with the uh, prison, uh, the school to prison pipeline issues and racial areas. Uh, I have, there's a publication from the feds that they published last year of where that stands. And I'm going to spend some time researching that and writing a paper on that as the next target. All right. Sounds interesting. We'll look forward to talking with you about that. So thank you so much for joining us today, Larry. We've enjoyed the conversation, certainly giving us some things to think about as we uh, work with our leadership team to plan for what's next. Um, to learn more about Larry's work, you can check out the resources in the show notes. We linked the previous episodes as well as the uh, suggestions for additional learning from Larry today. Each episode, we leave you with a question to think about with the idea of provoking reflection and conversation. This episode's question, how will you design mental health support systems to support learners on a return to school after the COVID-19 pandemic is over? 
If you've enjoyed this episode, would like to comment or check out the resources shared today, visit the show notes at tltalkradio.org and look for season six, episode 35. That's all for this episode. We'll be back next week with another conversation featuring another innovative thought leader. Thanks again, Larry. Bye-bye. Happy to be here. Bye-bye. Bye. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.